This is Densely Speaking, Conversations About Cities, Economics, and Law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. I'm Greg Schill. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hi, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today on the show, we're going to talk about how transportation infrastructure and land use interact to shape the structure of cities. Our guest today is Devin Michelle Bunton. Devin is a teacher and writer in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. Hi, Devin. Hello, Jeff. We're going to discuss a recent paper by you, Devin, and your co-author, Lindsay Rolheiser. The paper is called People or Parking? Joining us to discuss Devin's paper is Catherine Levine Einstein. Catherine is an associate professor of political science at Boston University and a faculty fellow at the Initiative on Cities. She's one of the authors of the book, Neighborhood Defenders, Participatory Politics and America's Housing Crisis. One of her many areas of expertise is on the local politics of land use and housing development, which is one reason I'm glad that she's joining our conversation today. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Devin, let's start with your paper. One of the main contributions of the paper, I think, is to clarify the implications of land used by transportation infrastructure for city structure. Can you summarize what kinds of land uses you have in mind and what are the implications of the choice of transportation infrastructure for city structure? Yeah, I think that this is sort of the way that I've been thinking about it as well, that oftentimes transportation networks are sort of understood as links between places in a city. And you often even see transportation networks summarized as mathematical graphs. Imagine a piece of paper with a bunch of dots on it. Each dot corresponds to a neighborhood or other location. And then places are connected. If there's a, you know, if there's a link between them, that means there's a way to drive or walk or take the train or bus between those places. However, when you think about cars, for instance, that's not the end of the story. If you're trying to move between one location and another in a car, in addition to the link between the place, in addition to the road between the place, you also have to have somewhere to park at the end. And so the graph form, which is the the usual baseline form of understanding a transportation network, is a little bit incomplete insofar as in order for places to be connected, there has to also be something true about land use at the destination and at the origin. You have to have some place where your car starts out. You have to have some place where you can put it at the end of your journey. That land use entailment is sort of the way into, I think, trying to understand this paper. If you want to have a city that's oriented around cars, it's not enough to just have roads. You also have to have parking, which, of course, then affects what else you can or cannot use the land for at the destination. Right. So one of the main distinctions here that we're making is that when you have, say, a car-based transportation network, you need parking, which takes land, both at the origin and the destination. And that's distinct maybe from a lot of models of transportation networks. That's kind of the first part of the paper. But then we also want to think about what are the implications of this kind of land used by transportation infrastructure? So can you dig in a little bit more on, on those implications? Yeah, so I think that we're actually seeing a real life example of the salience of this trade off right now in cities that are, which is to say all of them, that are dealing with the COVID pandemic, right? I live in Boston. And so a lot of the small businesses around the corner from my house on the main drag have converted their street parking into outdoor dining. Indoor dining is not so safe right now. And so we have transitioned some of that space that used to be just parking into outdoor dining space. And this is not unique to Boston. This is happening in LA and parking lots. This is happening in a lot of cities. And that feature, I think, highlights what you are giving up all the time when you use land for parking. Used to say you're giving up active uses, I guess, you might say, of that space. For instance, in this case, outdoor dining could also be indoor dining. You know, you can't immediately build a restaurant or something. Any sort of parking lot could be put to use as something else. So 
uh, we think a lot about amenities in this paper, like restaurants, going out to eat, that sort of thing. But it's also true that it could be sort of any other active use. And at the other end of the trip, you have housing, right? So that's also a feature of Los Angeles, where I did my PhD. There's some interesting research on all of the informal housing that's taking place inside of what were built as garages that have been converted either informally or now sometimes formally into housing units. And so those are the sort of two trade-offs that we have in mind in this paper in particular, but it's sort of a more general thing. Those are the ones we focus on because we think they have some interesting features for how cities are shaped. Those are the, high, the key trade-offs, I guess, we have in mind. Turning into active uses like amenities, shops and restaurants, or housing on the other end. One thing that I want to kind of explore a little further, what it is about the inactivated space about parking that might be so potentially noxious. Is it aesthetic? Is it about the increased access costs? Is it about the lessened variety of visual stimulus? What, what, what do you have in mind here when you're talking about these kinds of excluded uses from parking? We really have in mind a fairly straightforward vision of it, which is just that it could directly be used for more of the stuff that people actually care about in life, which is to say more space for amenities, more space for housing, more people are able to live there, more people are able to do more fun things there and live a more fulfilling life. If instead of having a restaurant with a parking lot next to it, you have two different restaurants. It's like, yo, you sort of increase the amount of fun things you're able to have access to in the city. And so that's the sort of baseline. But I think that it's not too hard to imagine other costs as well. On the flip side, the benefit, of course, of having those parking spots is that people can get around. People have access to to getting to all of those places in a car-based city that without that parking, you can't really go anywhere. I also wanted to throw in some of the more equity-oriented things we might think about when we devote spaces to parking lots, right? You bring up housing, which I think is this really important amenity. When we build more housing, we reduce the housing prices, right? And so there's this real sort of public good. And I also want to think a little bit, of, you mentioned this at the end of the paper, and so maybe I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but really thinking about some of the environmental benefits as well. Like when we devote a large swath of city spaces to this impervious surface instead of to green space, there are these real social costs. And it's something, some ways, I mean, I love, I miss restaurants a lot. But when I think about like, what's the worst thing about parking, it's actually not that it's robbing me of a restaurant. It's really that it's robbing us of safe spaces to recreate, of ways of protecting our environment and making our cities less affordable so that we can have free storage for cars. I definitely want to get to what we think the welfare effects of these different kinds of choices are. I think in order to frame that discussion, let's dig in a little bit about what the main exercise the paper does. So the first thing you do is you build a model. Do you want to describe a little bit about what the model does and what it's for? Yeah, so the model is pretty basic, I think, by the standards of these sorts of things. It's really trying to understand or bring this trade-off about whether land is going to an active use like housing or amenities, or whether it's going to this parking use, which is to say supporting and making feasible a car-based transportation network. So that's the trade-off. And we wanted to embed that in a model. So what we needed for that was a model where people are traveling around the city going to a variety of destinations, and they go to those destinations in order to shop, to access amenities, to go out to eat. You can picture those sorts of things. And in the model, people also drive to work, or they potentially walk or take the train to work, depending on what their city looks like. So they take a trip to work, they work downtown in a monocentric city model, sort of a classic urban economics way. And then they do these shopping trips where they head to other parts of the city to engage in whatever amenity activities there are in different neighborhoods. 
And in that case, they do have a preference for variety. They like to go to sort of all of the different parts of the city and experience the different amenities that are there. They don't always just want to stay there where they live. They want to check out other parts of town as well. So that's the basics of the model. And then people make this decision about where to live. We write down an equilibrium. We see some prices, some location decisions and that sort of thing. There's a lot of sort of standard elements of this model, right? People live in a place. They want to go to different places. And then we have an economic equilibrium. The interesting part here is the use of the model, right? Which is to compare two different kinds of cities that have very different choices about transportation infrastructure. And so you picked Phoenix and New York. So can you talk a little bit about what we're learning from comparing Phoenix and New York? Yeah, so Phoenix and New York were this interesting cases that jumped out to me because they actually have the same population. They both are home to 1.6 million people. Now, Manhattan, it's not even New York, it's just Manhattan, it's to be clear. So Manhattan itself, home to 1.6 million people in about 22.8 square miles. And Phoenix is home to 1.6 million people in about 517 square miles. And so Phoenix has two Manhattans worth of parking. It has another five and a half Manhattans worth of roadways. So it has 130 miles of roadway, 50 square miles of parking. And so that seems like a really interesting trade-off because those are two very different lifestyles. And we wanted to try to capture both of them in this model. And so we do. And in the Manhattan version of the model, people walk and take the train to get around to access different amenities. And in the Phoenix version, people can walk or take the train. There's a train in Phoenix. They could take the train or they drive. And for most sorts of trips, most sort of commutes, most sort of trips, people do, in fact, in our model equilibrium, which holds true in the data as well. And then the exercise that we do from that is really to try to investigate or think about What would happen if in Phoenix, you simply banned cars? What would Phoenix look like in response to that? And we do a couple of iterations. The first iteration is we say, what happens if Phoenix banned cars, but kept the parking lots that that currently go to cars? So they kept the sort of land use essentially the same. How many people would still choose to live in Phoenix, given that they now have to walk to work or take the train to work? And the answer is approximately zero. No one would really stick around under our calibrated counterfactual, which is not so surprising. Because if you can't drive, there's not much of a train. And even if you want to live downtown, downtown Phoenix is full of parking lots. Like that's most of what's there. There's not a whole lot of, I mean, there are amenities and whatnot. It's not like you're living in a real walkable neighborhood like you would somewhere in Manhattan. So the next experiment we do is we say, what happens if we change this transportation network? We get rid of cars. You can't drive anywhere. But we allow that land that used to go to parking, we allow it to be used more productively for either housing, intensification of housing or intensification of these sort of retail amenities. Under that world, well, most people still leave Phoenix, but many fewer than leave Phoenix otherwise. And so you end up seeing what looks like this sort of small town oriented around central Phoenix. And it's not perhaps the most likely counterfactual that we're trying to explore, but we really want to see how big of a role does this land use feature play in determining whether or not a city is sort of able to survive or thrive without driving? Right. So you take away cars without allowing other margins to change like land use, and basically the city ceases to function. You add back into the model sort of the conversion of land use from parking to other uses, and you get sort of a less deleterious effect on Phoenix. 
I want to back up a little bit and walk our listeners through what's happening. So the sort of advantage or the usefulness of writing down an economic model is that you can make some assumptions and then hold things fixed while conducting experiments within the context of the model to sort of illustrate what might happen in response to some change like experiments you're doing. What is the goal of banning cars? One perspective is, are we thinking about evaluating a potential policy change? Another perspective is let's try to understand how cities work. I sort of feel like what you're doing is more in the latter category. We do engage in what is a pretty unrealistic exercise by the standards of usual economics papers, which is to say we ban cars from Phoenix and people are not allowed to drive anymore. That's pretty extreme, right? That might be one thing if you are at the same time doing some investment in transportation networks there. We're not even doing that. We're just saying ban cars. The goal here is really to try to understand these inner relationships between the transportation network as a network, as a means of getting around the city, and the land use that it entails upon these locations within the city. We're sort of looking for what we call in the paper complementarities. We're looking for trying to see if there's this relationship between land use and transportation that's sort of non-linear. What I mean by that is if you think about the problem of a single restaurant owner in a city, they have a restaurant, they have a plot of land. The restaurant is going to take up some amount of the land, you know, with tables and kitchens and whatnot. And then some amount of the land is probably going to go to parking, at least in a car-based city. And the sort of optimal arrangement of how much parking, how much table space to have, I don't know what the exact number is, 40, 60, 50, 50, 30, 70, something like that. You don't want to have all parking and no table space because then you just have a parking lot. You don't have a restaurant. Uh, and you also maybe don't want to have all table space and no parking because then where your clientele is going to come from. There's some sort of marginal trade-off between those two things. And a restaurant owner is going to go for somewhere in the middle, right? And we're sort of exploring the case where maybe that's not actually true. Maybe there's a world in which the restaurant owner actually does want to go 100% restaurant, wall to wall, corner to corner, and no parking at all. And when are they going to want to do that? They're going to want to do that when their location is one that is readily accessible by a lot of people who are going to walk there or who are going to take the train or a bus there. And that leads to this sort of situation, like, when is that true? When are there a lot of people there? Well, when the sort of nearby residential land is used pretty intensively, that it's not a small house with a big driveway and a two-car garage, but an apartment building with not much parking. And that sort of situation leads to where there's complementarities. If there's a lot of places around that don't have parking and have good amenities, lots of wall-to-wall restaurants and other sort of shopping amenities, then it's more likely that people are able to live a life where they don't need a car. And if there's a lot of people around who don't need a car, the easier it's going to be for a restaurant or other sort of service to get by without providing parking. And so that sort of complementarity and the trade-offs there are what we really wanted to explore. So when a, a local firm makes it easier for people to get around by walking makes the walking network sort of better. At the same time, it makes the driving network worse because that's now a location that people cannot really meaningfully access by car. And so that sort of trade-off is what we were really wanting to try to get at. And it seemed to us that the easiest way to do that was not try to, you know, do a percentage-based thing of like decrease parking by 10%. What effect does that have? This is just sort of go all out and <laughs> just ban cars. And we can see the conceptual implications thereof. If we're able to reuse that space for something else, that is to say, if we ban cars and then the restaurant owner can turn that wasted space of parking into more useful amenities and at the same time, residential areas intensify development, is that really true? Do we have this sort of complementarity situation where there's this underlying relationship that's governed by the land use necessitated by having a car-based transportation network? 
I want to tie together a couple of points that each of you have made. So I understand why you went with the conceptual model. And it's a really interesting thought experiment, which you've specified, I think, very thoughtfully in the model. But one reason why in real life it would be difficult for restaurant owners to select an optimal balance of parking and restaurant space, of course, is law, right? That starting around mid-century, just about every jurisdiction in the country, as many of our listeners know, jurisdictions started dictating centrally as a matter of state requirement what the minimum number of parking spaces would be, such that in some places there are now, like in Houston, there are 30 times as many parking spaces as people. That's created, I think, two things. One is a ton of off-street parking. Right, which then restaurants can't modify their quantity because it's legally prescribed. That's also true in the residential context. And so it means that parking ends up getting bundled with housing and, and given away for free rather than priced. And the efficient price probably would be very low because it's so oversupplied as a matter of law. And that then brings us to Katie's point about equity. We've got tons and tons of assets just sitting out there that are directed by the state to be produced. And that's in addition to all the free on-street parking, which in most cities, virtually all the parking is free, or maybe there's a nominal fee for a parking permit, except for the central business district during certain hours and so on. But 99% of the parking usually is free on-street, plus you have all the mandatory off-street. So take all that together. And as Katie was, I think, alluding to, there's some real equity implications for folks that don't have cars and now have to pay more for all their products because parking is priced. In. They also have to pay more for their housing in some studies up to 10, 20%. And also there's just this huge revenue generation opportunity that's been taken off the plate of cities. And it's hard for them to do local redistribution, right? This is an opportunity that they have and they can't really act on it. So I just want to build on that a little bit because I think your paper is wonderful and talks a lot about restaurants and these other amenities. But I really want to push to thinking about some of these really big equity concerns, right? What this means for our local government budgets, what it means for where local governments can and can't spend money, what it means for people's safety, right? When we have a lot of parking lots, when we encourage driving and driving in a very specific way, people who bike, people who walk get hit by those cars. People have to breathe in that air pollution. So in some ways, again, I think focusing narrowly on sort of the welfare of people who can eat at nice restaurants really misses this this bigger piece of the puzzle of why we should care about parking and why this is like a really important social policy issue. Yeah, I totally agree. As someone who's been hit by cars twice and a bus once (laughs) while on my bike, I couldn't agree more with the points that you're bringing up. I think the reason for me why I wanted to go in the direction that I did was because I do think there's something sort of centrally important about the notion that there are complementarities here, because that actually suggests that we have a situation where there might be tipping points that can move us not just in a way that's like, oh, we can introduce a gas tax or a carbon tax or other sorts of marginal increments to get people to reduce driving. But there's these really strong complementarities, which we sort of focus on restaurants as just like an easy way to think about something that people might like to get all the way around the city. But it's really all about any sort of trip that you have to make in life. If you have to make it in a car, you need parking to be at the destination. The existence of the complementarities means that it's just a fundamentally different city is possible. And so we don't really get into it in this paper. This paper was Lindsay and I trying to learn how to write down one of these fancy gravity models and implement it and play around with it a little bit. And so we have more papers on track and we'll get into this more. But I think that what our main interest in this is, is can we basically change the orientation of our cities, which are almost uniformly car-based cities in this country? I think Manhattan, not car-based, but I don't think that even cities with subways like D.C., it's hard for me to think that D.C. is not a car-based city sort of fundamentally oriented around cars. 
can we do something different? And I think that the existence of these strong complementarities suggests that a different world is possible. And our hope for future work is to build in a more in-depth transportation network into a city that is driving based, could now become a, a transit-based city, and ask what happens then. In Phoenix, we just banned cars. So the question is, can we ban cars, but also build out a mass transit network in a way that makes the city greener and more equitable and more intensively developed and reduces the health risks of living around cars? The hope for that, I think, depends on the existence of these sorts of complementarities. That theme that these strong complementarities mean that there are full equilibria was very clear to me. I definitely recognize this idea that, okay, there's these different ways of organizing one and a half million people. You could have a car-based network with a lot of parking, or you could have a transit-based network with very little land devoted to parking. But one thing that I kept thinking about was it also suggests that it can be very hard to transition between one of these states and another state. Just to think about it from an individual level, an individual restaurant owner may want to be in a walkable area and not have to provide parking. But in a city where everybody drives everywhere, that may not be a profitable available option to to that restaurant owner. And I also think about changing parking policies as something that engenders a lot of resistance These regulations that Greg alluded to, right, they have a constituency. And I'm sure Katie and her work can tell us all about how much people complain about parking issues. But it's a little bit of a pessimistic picture that your paper paints. So there is this other potential equilibrium, but it may be very uh, difficult to get there. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think that with Greg and Katie on the call, we have two of the experts on this kind of stuff and how thoroughly baked in to culture, to law, to space these problems are. I think that for me, the hope for this, for overcoming those, one, this paper is just trying to set up that this is a thing. This is a meaningfully different way of running a city that is not impossible. We actually have it. The second hope that I have for that, which is not exactly what you asked, but I think is relevant, is thinking about investments like the Green New Deal. We're talking about a Green New Deal that's going to dramatically reshape America's reliance on carbon and do so by investing trillions of dollars into reorganizing society. It's hard for me to think of a better way to do that than turning Los Angeles into a transit-oriented utopia. And that sort of scale is both necessary to do that. As you're talking, this is not minor changes, but that sort of scale is also on the table through this context of thinking about Green New Deal, thinking about climate action. I don't know that I'm hopeful in the sense of like, oh, that's going to happen. But to the extent that I have hope for it, that really is the way forward. And I think that that's something that I am aiming to do with this project is, you know, not just this paper, but more work that we're doing on it is paint a picture of what that could really look like. So one thing that I think the model that you build here does is underscore the difficulty of changing paradigms. And you've shown how you can put 1.6 million people in Phoenix, or you can put them in Manhattan and the land use is going to look very different. And the changes that would result from removing cars are very different. And also the degree of complementarity that you would observe is different as well. It seems like it's difficult to transition from one to the other. And that's probably a bigger project than any paper or podcast can undertake. But I wonder if you have thoughts about how one might model a transition. So here you've modeled stasis, right? So how would one begin to think about breaking that up and allowing change of paradigm, which is something that's sort of intrinsically difficult to do politically and probably in every other sense. Yeah, I agree. It's really difficult to do and it's really difficult to imagine. 
dynamics within urban economics models are not a common feature. It's very often oriented around these static equilibria, and then we change something and then write a new static equilibria. And so the tools are not particularly well equipped for thinking about the dynamics. And the other thing that I'll say with that is that it's hard to imagine piecemeal changes like that. There's all of these systems that are sort of pushing us to one side of one equilibrium, very strongly tilting that way. So it's like to imagine walking to the other end of the teeter-totter and tilting towards the Manhattan equilibrium. Yeah, it really is a tricky and messy issue, which is sort of why I gravitate towards thinking about these bigger changes that come equipped with you know, political change like the Green New Deal, where there's some entity that's able to make a really big, meaningful move like the central government, because it is just really fundamentally difficult to imagine businesses and firms and neighborhood by neighborhoods densifying in any other fashion. I think maybe I'm like really lazy on equity this semester. I've been teaching race and politics. I've been answering my students very stressed out questions about mail-in voting and is it going to work properly? So I've been really thinking about quality in a lot of different ways. But I think this speaks a little bit to some of the political challenges that we're going to encounter with trying to reform these kinds of land use institutions. So this summer, I was reading The Warmth of Other Sons, which by Isabel Wilkerson, which is this amazing book that traces these Black families coming up from the South to the North and the Great Migration. And there's one incredibly powerful moment that I, as an urbanist, dog-eared because it was about cars and parking, which is not really what most people are probably paying attention to in that book. But there's one family that moved to Chicago, and their life initially in Chicago was just awful when they didn't have a car. There are these descriptions of the horrendous commute they had to go through to get to their factory jobs, and it was awful. And then later on, there's like all these signs of like somewhat arriving, like owning a home, having a car, and being able to drive to places easily. And so when we think about cars and encouraging people not to use them, it's not just that we're telling affluent, privileged people who have cars, you need to find another way to get from point A to point B. It's that we're also telling people who really understandably, given the way that American cities have constructed themselves, think of cars as a status symbol. No, we're actually going to make it a real pain for you to use this vehicle now. And that we think the right thing to do now that you have access to this is actually an entirely different mode of transit. And so I guess just thinking about the politics of this and how people think about cars, it's just really complicated um, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that it's one of those features, cars and the detached single family home, that the normative visions of the American dream, bridging the fact that that American dream was built on exclusion from the beginning, this place that they hold in people's, people's imaginations is really profound. And, and it's really meaningful. It is a status symbol, but it's not just a status symbol. It's a way to get around. It's a way to get out of town. It's a way to get to work. And I think that that's the work of undoing that has to be both cultural and material, that it has to be not just, oh, you shouldn't have a car anymore and you have to figure out some other way of getting there. But that's not to keep coming back to something like the Green New Deal. But here's going to be this other way of getting there. Here's going to be this tiny new train system that's truly for all. That's a very different world. And I think that that has to come through both materially as well as culturally. And I think that a lot of the branding around that has tried to do that work. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has released these posters of a new Works Progress Administration trains moving through Los Angeles and whatnot. And it's sort of aspirational train-oriented society. I can't imagine getting there without that. One way that you put it in the paper that I thought was useful was to distinguish between mobility and accessibility. And cars provide increased mobility, but they may reduce accessibility in precisely the way that you describe in your paper. In contrast, you know, like transit may be less flexible, reducing mobility, but it may, in a city that's organized around transit, you may have improved accessibility. 
Yeah, that's really the idea that started me on this project, I guess, to begin with, which was not really just what came out in this paper, but really, it actually came out teaching in a housing history class a couple of years ago, and I was teaching Crabgrass Frontier, Ken Jackson's great book. And I was trying to talk about walking cities and then streetcar cities and then driving cities, sort of three different city types that we've had. And going to my classic tool of a monocentric city model, trying to draw a streetcar city and a a driving city, I quickly realized those are the same city. There's no difference between those. Both a streetcar and a car make it easier to commute in from suburbs to your job at the middle. And so if there's a difference between those two, it has to be about something else. It has to be about getting around to more things than just work. And that's sort of where I settled, is that you can have a city that's just walking, and people are just walking, which is what we had for thousands of years as humans. And walking is a very high capacity mode. It doesn't can fit a lot of people through a roadway and you have to have parking for your foot traffic. You're able to do it in an uncoordinated way. You don't depend on anyone else. There's no massive infrastructure. You don't have to wait at a walk stop to like wait for the walking to show up and then you walk. You just walk. There's no bus stop equivalent. You just walk places. But it's very slow to walk. So once we developed industrial ways of moving more quickly and getting farther in a sensible amount of time, there were really two ways to do that. One was to preserve the high flexibility that walking offers. You don't have to show up at a stop and wait. You can just get up and go. And that's the car route. And so cars let people accelerate, go fast, not really depend on other people. I mean, that depends on other people in traffic, but you don't have to coordinate schedules or anything. You just get in your car and drive. But you're able to do that at the cost of capacity, that the roadway itself has much less capacity when you have a car on it than walking or than transit, and then the parking at either end. So there's this really big loss to capacity if you speed up through a car-oriented means. And then the other option is the streetcar or buses or trains where you're able to preserve the capacity. You can move a lot of people on a bus. You can move a lot of people on a train maybe an order of magnitude more on a train than on a a lane of car traffic. But you have to do it in this really coordinated way. We really depend on interacting with one another, both being in the same space as each other in the same literal vehicle. You have to coordinate on when travel times are, when is the train going to go, when is the bus going to go, where are the stops? That's a contentious issue. How many stops are there? How many trains are there? Where do the routes even go? It's very interconnected and interdependent and just it requires the social governance process, I guess, to not just install it up front, but also to manage it and keep it going, going forward. And I think that that sort of trade-off, which is where I landed, you can have speed, you can have capacity, and you can have interdependence or freedom from this sort of interdependence. But you can't have all three, you have two. There's a little trilemma there. And that was really the way into this project that I had. And I think the implications of that are sort of profound to get back to some of what Katie was talking about, about who is able to drive, who's able to have access to cars and how that's changed over time. One reason why white people pursuing exclusionary politics in a lot of realms of life might avoid a transit network because it's trying to avoid this sort of socially intensive process of getting around the city. That was great, Devin. I'm totally willing to turn this into a podcast on the history and philosophy of transport mode innovation. We can go on for another hour if you want. Yes. (laughs) I think this is the group for that. (laughs) I enjoyed the mention of Kenneth T. Jackson, who I had in college as a professor for a class called History of the City of New York, which to this day is my favorite class that I've had. One thing that I think you've alluded to, but I just want to make it explicit, is you talked about different uses of the street. It's hard to adopt a both and view of street use when the and 
is a motor vehicle, right? It's not impossible. I think Europe, for example, some in cities elsewhere in the world give some sense of that. And we've seen some of that during the pandemic when streets have been transformed into slow streets. But there's an inherent tension there because cars are loud, they go fast, they can kill you. Whereas if a street is shared by a parent pushing a stroller and somebody on a bike and somebody walking and people dining, those are more compatible uses. So I think the complementarity that you emphasize, which is intensifying land use, especially parking lots, I think is specifically complementary or more complementary when the streets can be used by people for multiple purposes as opposed to only for only for cars, right? There are some issues there as you get at with like employment, for example, being very concentrated. So it's difficult for people to access an employment center. Although that assumes that employment would stay concentrated under this model, as I understand it, right? As opposed to adjusting potentially to a to a scenario where cars are not allowed. Anyway, that was a cool thing that I think expresses an important fact of the allocation of our street space that we don't talk about on a regular basis. Yeah, we focus on parking lots in the paper, not because we think parking lots are the most or only important thing, but because we figured out a way to model in a pretty straightforward and simple fashion that allowed us to actually bring these complementaries into it. But I think that we've thought up so many more just in this podcast that the implications are much bigger than that. And I think that things like that are only going to reinforce the notion that a better world is in fact possible. And it's actually a lot better if we can figure out a way to get over the hump. Devin, do you have any final thoughts about your paper that you want to share? Stay tuned for the sequel. (laughs) Our paper is nearly out into the world, and I think that it was really fun to work on, but that we're really energized by some of these topics that have come up in this conversation. And so we're hoping to do more work that investigates some of the history of urban development through this lens and very much that investigate climate change and climate justice as well. So stay tuned for the sequels. Great. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for coming on to discuss your paper with Lindsay Rollheiser. The paper's title is People or Parking. There'll be a link to the paper in the show notes. Now is the time in our show where we share our appendices. Devin, would you like to go first? Sure. So for my appendix, I brought the book People Before Highways by my friend, the Carolyn Crockett, who is assistant professor of urban history, public policy, and planning at Department of Urban Studies and Planning with me at MIT, and is currently the chief equity officer for the city of Boston. And her book is about Boston activists, urban planners, and a new movement for city making that that chronicles the protests against a highway development that was slated to go through Boston's Southwest Corridor, which was going to connect I-95 in the suburbs to downtown Boston. And that in the inner belt, a couple of other freeways within Boston and Cambridge and Somerville and Brooklyn were subject to mass protests in the 60s against both the lane clearance that was necessary, because of course, freeways like parking take up land, and then just the sort of general principle that we needed freeways to organize our transportation through the city and through the region. And I currently live two blocks from the Southwest Corridor, which today is not a freeway and would be much less pleasant. You probably have heard it in the background if it was. Instead is subway and linear park that I go jogging on. I hang out with friends there. People play basketball. I don't play basketball. People play basketball on it. And so Carolyn's book delves into that history and the sort of social movements and the pulling and learning from across different social movements from the civil rights movement and others to what that fight was, how it worked, and then what became of of that space going forward. So that's my appendix for the day. That sounds like a great recommendation, Devin. And I bought that book last year on your recommendation. It's sitting in my office where I haven't been since March. So someday I look forward to reading it. But of course, it details a really important history in construction of highways and cities. So that sounds great. Katie, would you like to share your appendix for this week? 
So I've been really thinking a lot about who has safe access to these green spaces and these open spaces that we all as urbanists so much want to have more of. And, you know, I think a lot of people talk about this in the context of like policing and police violence. One of the books I've been reading right now is this book by political scientist at Michigan State named Nazita Lejavardi called Outsiders at Home, which actually looks at Muslim Americans and their ability to feel safe and welcome in the United States and discrimination against them. And it outlines, among other things, how after various instances like 9-11 and other moments where politicians have expressed hostility towards Muslim Americans, we actually have really good evidence from social media, from surveys, that Muslim Americans stayed away from these public spaces. They didn't go in them. And so again, it was just sort of a different lens of thinking about the ways that these spaces that we want to push for and have more of in our cities are in many ways only accessible to some people because of our politics and inequality in society. That's great. That sounds like a really useful and important perspective. So thanks for sharing that, Katie. Greg, what's your appendix for this week? Well, first of all, I think that's a really important thing to consider now more than ever. I learned recently that Iowa City, where I'm based, has the most disproportion in marijuana possession stops by law enforcement on a racial basis. So Black people are stopped disproportionate to white people at rates in Iowa City that are apparently, at least for that offense, higher than anywhere else in the country, which I was shocked to learn. So I think this is an issue that's getting more attention now, and hopefully we'll welcome the reckoning on it instead of doubling down on, on what we've done for so long. My appendix for this week is a newsletter from Henry Graybar, who is a journalist for Slate. He's got a newsletter called Frozen Music, which I think he started in anticipation of writing a book about parking, which is the hook to today. So the most recent iteration of his newsletter, he mentions a bunch of stuff about parking in London, which is where he's meant to be physically right now. He got a fellowship to study parking in London. He's not physically there, but he is writing about it. And one thing he mentioned is that London changed their parking requirements in the mid-aughts. And so between 2004 and 2011, he quotes a study that says that once those requirements were removed, developers built 144,000 fewer parking spaces in greater London than they would have under the old regime, which apparently amounts to eight Empire State buildings. You know, I think that's pretty impressive. The other piece of the London regulation that I think is not really part of the U.S. policy conversation, but is, uh, he mentions, and it's important, is that they actually switched to a parking maximum. So they didn't shift to a full sort of market system. They actually capped the number of parking spaces, I think, in recognition of some of the externalities of parking and missed opportunities of parking that we have talked about. So I thought that was a neat thing to flag, and we'll drop the newsletter link along with all the other appendices in the show notes. Thanks, Greg. I think it's interesting that the sort of policy change that you described is happening in, in London, a very old city. And just going back to our discussion on Devin's paper, I feel like older cities might present lower hanging fruit in terms of thinking about transitions to non-car, non-parking based equilibrium. Older cities that were originally built around walking and transit versus sort of like more greenfield cities, quote unquote, that were entirely developed in the age of the automobile. Your recommendation brought to mind kind of that thought that was left over from our discussion. My appendix this week. So in Devin's paper with Lindsay, there's a very precise statistic on how much land in Phoenix is devoted to moving and storing automobiles. So 10% of the land in Phoenix is devoted to parking and 25% of the land is devoted to roads. That led me to wonder how much of the land in Manhattan is devoted to parking and roads. Devin, do you know the answer? I do know the answer. You do know the answer. <laughs> what is the answer? The answer is almost the exact same percent. Really? 
Yeah. In uh, Manhattan. Yep. So a third of Manhattan. So the street grid of Manhattan makes up about a third of the island as a whole. And do you know, is this from remote sense data or is this from administrative data on parcels? That I'm not actually sure. So the Phoenix one comes from a paper by Juan Matute and co-authors. Juan is at UCLA. And the Manhattan one, I'm not sure where I know that fact from, but that's just the street grid, to be clear. That one's a little bit easier to calculate from parcel maps or that sort of thing. Let me tell you, I'm not so sure about that number. Oh, really? Yeah. I tried to find, is there a scholarly paper with this estimate? And I was not able to find a reliable source. So last summer, Farhad Manju in the New York Times had this article on imagining a car-free future for cities. And there's a statistic in there that says, if you added all the space in Manhattan devotes to cars, and I think he means parking and streets, you'd have an area nearly four times as large as Central Park, end quote. That would be about 20% of the land area in Manhattan. So that seems lower than the third that Devin cited. I went to this website called What the Street by Michael Zell and Stephen Bogner. And the goal of this website is to estimate the amount of land devoted to car infrastructure, bike infrastructure, and transit infrastructure in a bunch of different cities. I got an estimate from their website that didn't really make sense. They said 85 million square meters were devoted to car parking and car lanes. Now here they're dividing streets between bike lanes and car lanes, but that only amounts to something like 11% of the land area in New York. So that didn't seem right, right to me either. I found a statistic from the New York City Department of City Planning that said that in the, as a whole, streets accounted for 22% of the land area in 1995. So that didn't seem quite definitive to me either. And that's considering the five boroughs, not just Manhattan. And the only other thing I could find was this citation in a recent white paper from the Victoria Transportation Policy Institute, which cited the statistic that New York City allocated 22% of its land area to roads. They cited this book by Vasconcelos, from 2001 called Urban Transport and Environment and Equity. And that book reports an estimate of 21.9% of New York City devoted to roads in 1986. That book cites another article by Kim and Gallant in 1998 as the source of that statistic. The article that Kim and Gallant is Transport Issues and Policies in Seoul and Exploration, which cites a white paper that I wasn't able to access online by the Korea Transport Institute from 1996 for that 22% number. So what I'm saying is like when you try to Google for how much land in New York is devoted parking, you get Farhad Manju's piece, which says 20%. And you have a bunch of other sites, which appear to be the same statistic from a Korea Transport Institute article or white paper from 1996. So I remember correctly, the Manhattan number, which I believe is higher, the 36% that I'm thinking of is from a book called The Greatest Grid. It's about the street grid plan itself. That's what I'm remembering, but I don't know where they got that from. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. It'd be apocryphal. <laughs> I'm going to check out that book, but if our listeners have any clues about a precise and reliable estimate, please share that with us on Twitter. I think it's telling, actually, that it's so difficult. Thanks, Jeff, for walking us through your research process. But it's, I think, revealing that this is basically not a figure that is tracked. And... That's true in Manhattan. It's true everywhere. The amount of space that we give to cars, both through streets and through parking mandates, that's just not historically been conceptualized as something that is worthy of policy attention. And I think hopefully we start talking about that more, especially with global warming. Excellent. Thank you for listening to today's show. 
Thanks to our guests, Devin, Michelle Button, and Catherine Levine-Einstein. I had for Greg Schill. I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Palace. Check the show notes for links to articles that we discussed today on the show. And let us know what you think about today's show on Twitter. The show has a handle, at Densely Speaking. Greg is at Greg underscore Schill. Devin is at Devin underscore MD. Catherine is at Catherine Einst, E-I-N-S-T. And I am at Jeff R. Lynn. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate the show as well. It helps other listeners find the show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts are guests are affiliated.